0: I think it's true that everyone likes a happy ending for a film. Uh, if you've paid good money to go and see a movie, you want to walk out of the theater feeling positive. Uh, you want that positive ending, that happy ending to the movie. It's pretty common knowledge that movie makers in the United States uh, certainly do this. When they make a movie, they'll often make it with an alternative ending. Uh, You can chase some of these endings up on YouTube and see how movies sometimes end a little differently. Uh, But when they make the two endings, they'll have a little trial audience and they'll show them one ending and then show another audience the other ending and choose which ending they're gonna have for the movie based on the audience responses. And nine times out of 10, it's the happy ending that everybody wants. They want the positive ending to the story. Now, if you're looking for a happy ending for the story of Jonah, I've got a suggestion for you. When you get home today, get a little bottle of liquid paper and white out chapter four, because that's really not a very happy ending to this story. But the end of chapter 3 would have been a perfect ending for the story, wouldn't it? I mean, think about the story if it were just those three chapters. You'd have Jonah being called by God at the beginning of chapter 1, running away, catching the boat to Tarshish, uh, getting thrown overboard, being saved by God inside the belly of the whale, and then finally being obedient to God, going to Nineveh, preaching to the people, and the whole city gets converted. I mean, that'd be a great ending for the story, wouldn't it? And the final words of the story would be, chapter 3, verse 10, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil ways, he had compassion and did not bring upon them the destruction he had threatened. What a great ending that would be for the book. That's your, and they all lived happily ever after ending, right there, isn't it? But that's not where the story ends. We've got one more chapter. And and it almost sours a good story. But the final chapter is where the main point of the book is found. This is what it's all been leading to. Last week in chapter three, we saw that the whole city of Nineveh has responded to Jonah's preaching. Yeah, and he only had a simple message: forty more days and Nineveh will be destroyed. But the whole city has responded, from the king right down to the lowest person in the kingdom. They are all turning to God in repentance. So how does Jonah feel about this? How does he feel that this whole city has heard what he said and acted on it? They've done what Jonah surely wanted them to do. Well, we find out right at the beginning of the chapter how Jonah feels. Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry. What he's literally saying there is that he's greatly displeased at this evil thing that God has done. He prayed to the Lord, verse number 2, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? That's why I was quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you are gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. Jonah is displeased. He's angry with God. So what's he displeased about? Why is he so angry? He's displeased that God didn't bring about the destruction on Nineveh. He's angry because God is compassionate. Have a look there in verse 2. See those words, you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love. Did you know those words actually come up seven other times in the pages of the Old Testament? But do you know the unusual thing here? This is the only time here in the book of Jonah that they're intended as a criticism. All the rest of the time, they're wanting to praise God because he's gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. But not Jonah. I mean, do you know what he's saying here? He's saying, I knew that this was going to happen, God. I knew that you'd have compassion on, people, on these people. That's why I ran away. He is angry that God has had compassion on them. I mean, that's just crazy, isn't it? He didn't seem to mind too much that God was compassionate and gracious when he was sucking in lungs full of water back in chapter 2. In fact, he seemed pretty chuffed that God was gracious and compassionate there, didn't he? But now Jonah's angry. In fact, he's beyond angry. He's fuming. He's so angry that he wishes that he was dead. And God poses a very simple question to him. Verse 4, but the Lord replied, have you any right to be angry? And did you notice Jonah's answer to that question? It's right there in verse, oh, hang on. He hasn't got an answer. He doesn't say anything. He's angry that God has saved these people and that's all there is to it. He doesn't even want to talk about it. But the outrageous behaviour goes a little bit beyond that. After shaking his fist at God and telling God just how angry he is, we're told that he heads out to the east side of the city. Verse 5. Jonah went out and sat down at a place east of the city, and there he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. Now, at first glance, it's a bit difficult to see what's going on here. The passage doesn't exactly tell us. But I think it's pretty safe to guess, like we saw in the cartoon... He's gone out there hoping that God might still destroy the city, that he might change his mind one more time. Seems as though the east side of the city was going to be the best place to be able to watch the destruction of the city if that destruction did take place. Can you believe this guy? He wants to see these people punished. He wants them judged by God. He wants them destroyed. He doesn't want them saved. So God decides that it's time to teach Jonah a lesson and I think we'd all agree it's time someone taught Jonah a lesson. God, however, is going to take a far more gracious and gentle approach than perhaps we would, though. Jonah's there on the edge of the city waiting to see what's going to happen, built himself a little shelter. Well, God causes a vine to grow up over the top of the shelter and it makes Jonah's life just that little bit more comfortable But then God sends a worm to eat the vine and the vine is destroyed and to compound the problem, God sends a hot east wind to blow and now Jonah's life is very miserable again. And it's all a bit too much for Jonah. And and, and have a look at verse 8. You've got to notice this carefully. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said it would be better for me to die than to live. He's just as angry about the vine dying as he is about the Ninevites not dying. In fact, he repeats exactly the same words. And again, God asks him exactly the same question about the vine Verse 9, God said to Jonah, do you have any right to be angry about the vine? Jonah thinks that he does, and he's going to continue to be angry. God really does show remarkable patience with this man, doesn't he? I mean, imagine if you worked with this guy. Imagine if he was in the cubicle next to you in the office it would be a disastrous situation, wouldn't it? I mean, this guy is such a pain. He's been an enormous pain for God to work with, but God has persevered. God really has been gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. God points out to Jonah that he doesn't have any right to be angry about the vine. Jonah didn't plant it, he didn't tend it, he didn't make it grow. It wasn't Jonah's vine. So he has no right to be angry about the vine dying. But the point that God wants to make is not about vines. It's about people. And you see it there in verse 11. This is the closing words from the book. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left and many cattle as well. Should I not be concerned about that great city. Do you like the way God describes the Ninevites? They're people who don't even know their right hand from their left hand. They're people who don't even know what day of the week it is. That's how lost they are. I mean, God's effectively saying to Jonah, what do you want me to do, Jonah? You want to get all angry about a plant dying, but you'd be perfectly happy to see a city of 120,000 people die. Is that right? Is that what you're trying to tell me? Can't you see there's something wrong with your thinking here, Jonah? So what do we make of this strange book? How do we sum up the message of the book of Jonah? What are we supposed to learn from it? All the way through, I've been saying that when we look at the book of Jonah, we've got to remember that this book had an original audience. There was a message for them, and that was the people of Israel, the people among whom Jonah lived. This was written for them. And the people of Israel at this time, well, they were a bit like Jonah. They spent all of their time running away from God not wanting to live faithfully in their relationship with God. They have no interest in living as God's people. That is, of course, until they find themselves in big trouble. And then they'll be crying out to God for help, just as Jonah did in chapter 2 in his prayer. At this particular point in Israel's history, they are about 50 years away from judgment finally coming on them, from the Assyrians coming in and decimating their land, and they will never rise again. Israel will fall because of their unfaithfulness to God. In the book of 2 Kings, the book that outlines the history of Israel and Judah, uh, this is how it sums up what happened. The Lord warned Israel and Judah through all his prophets and seers... Turn from your evil ways. Observe my commands and decrees in accordance with the entire law that I commanded your fathers to obey and that I delivered to you through my servants the prophets. But they would not listen and were were as stiff-necked as their fathers who did not trust in the Lord their God. See, the message for the people of Israel is really simple, isn't it? Wake up to yourselves. Start taking God seriously. If a bunch of godless Ninevites can respond when a guy goes and preaches eight words to them, surely you've got to be able to listen when I send all of these prophets. But it goes a little deeper than that. God's plan was always to bring blessing to the other nations. God's plan was never just limited to Israel. It was a plan for the whole world. God's plan was that the whole world would be be blessed through Abraham and his descendants. Jonah should have been thrilled that the Ninevites had responded. He should have been so excited that these people have come to trust in his God. But his attitude shows just how far Jonah... And the people of Israel are away from God at this point in time. What about the message for us, sitting here, Campbell Street Church, January 2014? Well, in some ways I think the message is rather obvious, isn't it? What we have in this book, when we get to the final chapter, is this massive contrast between Jonah and God. On the one hand, we have Jonah, who can look at the city of Nineveh and hope that the whole place and every single person in it is destroyed. He has absolutely no concern for those people who don't know God. But then on the other hand, we have God, who has this overwhelming heart for the lost. God's the one who would rather have compassion rather than punishment. God looks down on the city of Nineveh and demonstrates overwhelming compassion. It's no surprise that the attitude that we see God demonstrate here is the same as the attitude that he has in sending his son Jesus into the world. God's desire is always to be gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. Jesus summed up his reason for coming into the world as this in Luke's gospel. The son of man came to seek and save what was lost. Jesus came to seek and save lost people. People who don't know their left hand from their right hand. People who don't know God. That's the attitude that God has to the lost. That's the attitude that Jesus has to the lost. But that's not the attitude that Jonah has to the lost, is it? So let me ask you, what about your attitude to the lost? to those who don't know God. Here's a little scale, 1 to 10. The scale measures your concern for lost people, for people who don't know God. Not hard to see where Jonah's going to fit on this scale. He's right down this end. We're going to give him a zero. He has absolutely no concern for these people who do not know God. On the other hand, we have God, who just has this overwhelming concern for the lost. So we're going to put him right up there at 10. 10. So, where do you fit? Where do you think you'd sit on this scale? Maybe here? Maybe a little bit further up? I mean, you're not going to be right up there near God, but you don't want to be down that end near Jonah either, do you? I don't think anyone would like to be down the Jonah end of the scale. No one would like to think that that was where they were, but sadly, that sometimes is where people end up sitting. I know it's going back a few years, but way back in 1796, the General Assembly of the Church of Scotland were considering establishing a foreign mission program. Uh, Other churches were doing it, taking the gospel to those parts of the world where they'd never had the opportunity to hear about Jesus. One of the members of the assembly was so thoroughly opposed to this idea that he stood up in the assembly and as part of his speech he said this to spread abroad the knowledge of the gospel among barbarous and heathen nations seems to me highly preposterous and it would be another 35 years before the General Assembly of the Church of Scotland would establish their mission program makes you proud to be Presbyterian doesn't it? But that's the spirit of Jonah right there, isn't it? Isn't that Jonah standing up and talking in that assembly? Saying, how ridiculous, why would we take the gospel to those people? To those barbarous and heathen people? That would have been Jonah's thinking. I mean, the people of Nineveh, the Assyrians, they were a very brutal people. Why would you want to take the good news to them? Why would you want them to repent? Let me ask you another question that might help clarify where you sit on that scale. What are you doing about the lost? What efforts are you making to help them to be found? We'd like to think that we had some concern for those who don't know Jesus. But sometimes our actions make us look a little bit more like Jonah than we'd really want. There are things that every single person in this room can do to demonstrate their concern for those who don't know Jesus. Let me give you three quick suggestions. First of all, and this is a really important one, never forget the salvation that you have from God in Jesus. I think one of the most disturbing things in the book of Jonah is that the man who can say this in chapter 2, those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs, but I with a song of thanksgiving will sacrifice what I have vowed I will make good. Salvation comes from the Lord. How can the guy who says that in chapter 2 then be so angry about the people of Nineveh being saved? See, if we truly understand what God has done for us in Jesus, if we truly understand what it is to be forgiven, if we truly understand that we have eternal life, then we will have a concern for those who don't know God. We will want other people to know what we know. We will want other people to have what we have. Second thing is this. You don't have to be Billy Graham to have a concern for the lost. God doesn't call every single one of us to walk into cities and preach the way that Jonah did. See, one of the best ways that you can actually show your concern for those people who don't know God is to pray for them. And pray for them specifically. Pray that God would stir their hearts. Pray that God would be gracious to them. Pray that they might understand more about who Jesus is. If we want to have a heart that's like God's heart, then we need to be talking to God about those people who don't know him. Final thing is this. We do need to be ready to tell others about what God has done for us in Jesus. God doesn't ever expect that we will all be able to explain every single facet and detail of the Christian faith. God doesn't have that expectation of us. But he does expect that we'll be able to share the hope that we have. He does expect that we will want other people to know about what we have, that we will be letting them know about God's compassion, God's heart, God's love for us in his son God wants us to have a heart that beats like his a heart that wants others to come to know and trust in Jesus as well